Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, fellow diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digging into diverse topics, all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And we love hearing from you on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please drop us a line. The Temptations said it, the Stones said it, and we're going to say it too. Ain't too proud to beg. Won't you kindly consider making a monthly micro-donation via Patreon? Or if you prefer a one-time donation via PayPal. Go to our website, www.rockandrollarchaeology.com for the links. Thank you. Okay, business handled. Today, we're going back to school. We met Charles L. Hughes in episode 13 of our main podcast, Hard to Handle. About two-thirds of the way through, we used a quote from his excellent book, Country Soul, Making Music and Making Race in the American South. That quote kind of summed up the section of the show where we talked about how the politics and culture of black power influenced soul music and vice versa. Oh, and when you hear the quote in the show, that is Charles Hughes, not a voice actor. We first came across Charles and his work in the course of researching episode 6, Soul Sisters, and we went to his work again while researching our 13th episode. He comes at the topic of American soul music from a different angle, has a different perspective, and we found it to be a useful and interesting perspective. Uh, We'll get into that and more in our interview. Okay, a a little more about the good professor. According to the Rhodes College website, Dr. Charles L. Hughes, Ph.D., is the director of the Memphis Center at Rhodes, where he designs courses, fellowships, and partnerships. He earned his doctorate in American Studies from the University of Wisconsin. Some of the courses he teaches, The History of Memphis, Elvis Presley in America, and The Music of the American South. Oh, man, sign us up. Why didn't they have cool courses like that when we were in college? Well, you know about his first book, Country Soul, which was published to wide acclaim in 2015. Charles has done guest lectures at universities across the country and at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, where he is a voting member. There's a link to his Rhodes College webpage in the show notes. And if you'd like to buy a copy of Country Soul, you can click through to Amazon and do just that. On April 27, 2017, Professor Hughes let us stay after class and pick his brain. We really enjoyed it. And we think you will, too. So, let's get to it. I went out to a club down in the ghetto. 
Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Professor Hughes. How are you today? I'm great, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, we're glad to have you. So today we'll dig into your book, Country Soul, Making Music and Making Race in the American South, and published in 2015. We used part of it as a research for the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcasts, episode 13, Hard to Handle. And uh, for our listeners, the voice of Professor Charles L. Hughes was performed by... Charles Hughes. So we want to thank you for that. So, uh, all right, let's uh, let's get into it. First, give us a quick version of your uh, curricula vitae, your uh, your credentials, Professor. Sure. So I um, I did my training as a historian uh, at the University of Wisconsin uh, in Madison, and that which is where I started working on this project. And then oh. after I yeah, and then after I finished up there, I became a, a postdoctoral fellow for a couple of years at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. When that ended, I took a job at Oklahoma State University, uh, and then a year later, they asked me to come back to Rhodes to, to uh, direct the Memphis Center, which is a thing we have here uh, that does a lot of local stuff. So it's uh, it's been a great journey uh, that has brought me back to Memphis, which is very appropriate given the work I do. Oh, certainly. Uh, tell me a little bit about the Memphis Center. So basically what we do at the Memphis Center is we design courses and events, programs, those sorts of things that try to connect our students uh, and our faculty to the Memphis community. So thinking about using Memphis as a place to learn, to collaborate, uh, to do really a lot of very interesting research and creative projects, a lot of cool stuff. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So at what point in your education slash your academic career did you start zeroing in on Southern soul music? It was very early. Um, I started thinking about Southern soul music as a research topic from even the time I was an undergraduate. Uh, in college doing some research projects, trying to think about the connections between popular music and racial politics. But I'd been a fan of soul music for a long time before that. And I think one of the reasons that I was drawn to thinking about this project is that I love the music and I was also fascinated by, particularly in Southern Soul, how you could have this music that was thought of as sounding so black, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever that's supposed to mean, right? (laughs) But but this music that sounded so black and was so associated with African-American, not only identity, but politics, right? The soundtrack of the civil rights and black power movement. God, yes. Yeah, and I, as you know, you've recently discussed on your episode, right? And I and I felt like it's such an interesting thing that that music uh, was created by basically an integrated group of musicians, interracial, black and white. So that was kind of how I got into the story, uh, and then I just went from there and found that it was it went in a lot a lot more directions and some unexpected directions in terms of connections that I was able to draw. Yeah, uh, from your book, on the face uh, of it, and what we you know started from is that you know this is a great moment of uh, racial unity uh, mm-hmm. you know, after you know slavery uh, Jim Crow uh, right. Civil Rights Act uh, Voting Rights Act 64 65 all of a sudden you know hey we're all getting together but your book actually uh, is uh, changes that narrative yeah. a bit so you know the, the book Country Soul Making Music and Making Race in uh, the American South your introduction the title of your introduction is kind of interesting because you kind of lay out uh, your charge right there called there's a redneck in the soul band <laughs> right uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a fun way of making a point so talk a little bit about that and how you came about that and how you were able to capture pretty much the book and you know distill it into this interesting way that it worked yeah well that title there's a redneck in the soul band comes from a song by the great southern soul blues singer 
Lattimore, who in 1975 had a hit, not a huge hit, but kind of a minor hit with a song that was very, very similar in its theme to, to play that funky music, White Boy, uh, which came a, a couple years later, actually. Lattimore got there first. But the song is really about this scene of this African-American club with that's just packed with people and listening to the band. And the reason why everyone is so fascinated is because uh, there's a white guy playing guitar. And when the song's protagonist goes in and is hanging out, somebody tells him there's a redneck in the soul band and he's getting down. And the whole song is really about this this kind of surprise uh, that, you know, there is this funky soul band that features a white kind of country guitar player. And I was so fascinated by that song because it symbolized in many ways that sort of paradox, right, that I was trying to explore in the book, uh, but also that moment where the idea of country and soul music become a symbol for thinking about, you know, broader changes in American racial politics and thinking about the relationship between black and white. And I love the fact that it's a song about America's kind of racial landscape that is told through a story about musicians who are on the job, right? Because so much of what I talk about in the book are the way that working musicians in, you know, live on stage or in the studio were able to kind of figure out what this was going to be and reshape the way we think about race and certainly the way we hear music and race uh, through their day-to-day work. So I love that song. It's such a great record. In some respects, it's a better version of what I'm trying to do. You know, it's four minutes long and you can dance to it, which isn't true (laughs) about my book. But uh, Yeah, I don't think I've tried, but uh, some of our listeners may want to. There you Um, go. But, uh, But I love that song. And I also love starting with Lattimore because he's not a name that is necessary as well-known, particularly outside the South and outside of a certain generation. Um, but he's such a great artist. He's still around, and I, I kind of love the opportunity to, to start off with him. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it seems that, and in, in while most of our discussion uh, is centered in the 60s right now, uh, we talk about, uh, you know, the coming together uh, and, of yeah. course, then the splitting apart right. uh, as we get into the 70s and 80s. And to your point, you know, you have country music on one side, you have soul music on the other side. Yeah. It, it almost mimics the politics uh, that we're still kind of dealing with today right. in some ways. So what we really liked in, in country soul and and as I said in the opening, you know, we quoted it in episode 13, Hard Handle. Our show is about uh, primarily Otis Redding and, and yeah. Southern Soul as well. So we'll put it this way. We, we read a bunch of uh, books about the music, the people, mm-hmm. the scene, the the time. And, and yours is really different from, from all of them. Talk about that. Tell us what different lens do you use to look at 60s soul music and culture yeah. as opposed to what's been written prior? Well, there's a couple things. The first thing is that, and I, I also want to say, you know, I, I definitely wrote the book understanding that I was sort of writing against a very well-worn narrative and a lot of books. And I, I'm always, you know, I, I always make a point of saying that a lot of those books were really, really vital and important for me, you know, and I couldn't have done what I did without them. So I always say that, you know, in part because uh, I don't want to just come, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to just come off as critiquing these this oh, narrative. Oh, we, we all but, stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's no way that I could have written this book without Peter Garalnik's Sweet Soul Music or a few of the other books that I, you know, kind of uh, bounce off of a little bit. They're just, they're tremendous and they're foundational. Anyway, so the big difference, I think, is twofold. First of all, I kind of approached the story in thinking about this coming together of these black and white musicians as a story that 
is not necessarily a metaphor for the civil rights movement. You hear a lot of people talk about how because black and white musicians were coming together to make music, that that was this sort of signal or uh, or a metaphor for the coming of integration more generally and how music erased all the barriers and all this stuff. And it's a hopeful the, thought, definitely. It's a very hopeful thought, and it's not wrong, right? I mean, it is true in certain respects that are very significant. But I was interested as I did the research, I realized that that narrative is really simplified. And the idea that there was this great period of interracial collaboration uh, that then was split apart, particularly after the assassination of Martin Luther King, I just found that that really wasn't the case uh, on either side. I found that there was uh, more racial conflict than we sometimes realize in the early days, Before. in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And then also that, you know, this kind of back and forth and interchange between black and white musicians didn't end after the King assassination at all. And so I was kind of interested in playing around with rethinking why we continue to kind of re- repeat this story that I don't necessarily think is true if you if you look at, at the evidence. The other thing that I do that I think is, uh, is different is that my primary interest, as I said before, is to think about musicians as working people. Because I think that the language that people use to say like, well, black and white came together, therefore it must be a, have been the civil rights movement in action. No, it's Whereas owner think, and employee like a Howard Zinn-esque uh, type of right. uh, dissertation, right? Exactly. Whereas what I'm, what I think is that as powerful as that was, the musicians themselves thought of themselves as workers. They thought of themselves as skilled professionals who understood that their ability to play with the best musicians meant that they would cross racial lines, right? And they thought about race all the time as they did this. There's this kind of myth, I think, that somehow they weren't, that they didn't see race or all this stuff. And I think in a lot of ways, that's just simply not true. Not only because there were racial conflicts, but more so the, the fact that they were able to do all of this as black and white people in the South in the 60s and 70s, they had to have race at the forefront of their mind, right? And the fact that they were able to it do this- It had been that race, way for hundreds of years. Exactly. And the fact that they were able to do so much great stuff, I think is a testament to just how how brilliant they were, how how hardworking they were. And I think they're actually, it's a, it's a greater accomplishment when you realize how much race mattered, as opposed to trying to pretend that it didn't matter. True, true. So drilling down into a, a little bit more, uh, again, while we've kind of hit on this, uh, that, uh, you know, you you looked at Peter Goralnik and Robert Gordon and some of the others, mm-hmm. and while you don't necessarily disagree with them, you just decided to take a different take and expand right. upon their work and show the uh, the depth, the convolutions that really existed as opposed to maybe the romanticized uh, mythology that, uh, yeah. that that you get from some of those books. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think it is. And I think, you know, particularly thinking about Peter Goralnik's Sweet Soul Music, a lot of the things that I think about that narrative, I mean, his book was so influential in kind of establishing this story that we tell about soul music. Yeah, and yeah that about, came out, like, right? in 84, if I yep, remember. Early 80s, yeah. But one thing I think, too, is that, you know, Goralnik is a lot 
if you go back and read Sweet Soul Music, right, Guralnik is offering, I think, a much more complicated version than even a lot of the people who quote Peter Guralnik. You know what I mean? I think I think that there's a lot more of a sort of simplified version that gets that gets kind of photocopied and photocopied and photocopied and loses its resolution uh, from Guralnik. But there's no question that, you know, Sweet Soul Music offered this idea that there was this kind of moment of possibility in the early 60s when black and white were working together and that that then ended in the late 60s symbolizing the end of the civil rights movement. And that is a narrative that I just wanted to trouble in a variety of ways. Um, And I think that one of the best ways to do that was to, you know, to look at not just the soul side of things either, but, you know, because increasingly as I did the research, I realized that one of the problems with the previous books about the topic were that people, the, the, the framing was fundamentally thinking about racial integration in soul music, which meant the story of white people coming into black music, mm-hmm. whereas very few people talked about black musicians trying to get into or working in country music, which I thought when you when you do that and when you add Nashville, particularly back into the story, you see something very interesting. And one way the interchange gets more interesting and more complicated, yeah. most, but also most, the ra- most people do use they use Atlantic Motown and Stax as kind of right. their triad. You change yeah. it up a little bit by saying Stax, Muscle Shoals and Nashville. And that right. is a totally different, especially Nashville. It's a totally different element to it. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go and ahead, I, go ahead. Oh, anyway, what you're no, totally. And I'm just sort of thinking about how does country music play into this? Because country music and soul music by the end of the 60s are so well known as symbols for racial identity that people who don't even really think or talk about music are using them as metaphors, right? Uh, there's a great quote that I don't think I included in the book from a, a Japanese-American writer from the late 60s named Frank Chin, who was this really, really political writer. And I remember, you know, very radical, kind of um, writer. I remember reading an article that he wrote where it was just something about uh, about literature. And mm. and then like right in the middle of it, he drops this reference to being something being as different as country music and soul music. Like it's just, <laughs> it became, you know what I mean? Politicians were using it. Uh, activists were thinking about it. There's, you know, as I talk about in the book, Vietnam veterans or Vietnam soldiers, active duty soldiers were f- literally battling uh, over the, the records on the jukebox and the PX, you know? So it's it's such an interesting story to add. I'll, I'll think of the Oliver Stone movie Platoon. I mean, where you had that break, and yeah, you know, yep, absolutely. Uh, the hicks listen to country, and yep. uh, you know, the black troops and the hipsters listen to soul. So that's, that's right. That's, yeah. So yeah, it's it's in the zeitgeist. It's, uh, it's it's just part of the DNA. And I guess you right. are trying to split that a little bit apart and get people to look at it uh, differently. I would say Is that uh, that's about right. Yeah, I would say so. And I think you know, I certainly don't think that I have a monopoly on wisdom or that whatever you know. But I think that what I wanted to do was kind of express the story in the most accurate way that I could thinking of it from this perspective and really trying to get kind of folks to rethink this assumption that uh, that this story is just a story of, of racial harmony and progress because I think actually it's it's much more complicated and I think the musicians did a lot more interesting things and 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 sometimes troubling things and sometimes wonderful things but I think kind of breaking out of that 
that storyline, uh, I think, actually makes us respect and uh, appreciate what the musicians did even more. At least it did for me. I guess I shouldn't speak for anybody else. but No, I think you proved that pretty well in the in the book. So how much progress do you think has been made since those big moments of Southern <laughs> soul in the 1960s? Uh, you know, uh, walk me through the decades in, in short order. And, and I know you, you kind of stick with the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Sure. But how do you think country holds up compared to the same? Era's soul, funk, and hip hop today. In terms of the the kind of racial yeah, politics, yeah. Well, I, that's really interesting, right? I mean, country st- still, I think, has a lot of you know, is a very ambivalent place for African Americans, right? Yeah. I mean, D- Darius Rucker became the first African American country singer since Charlie, Charlie Pride, Pride to have, right. to have <laughs> any real chart success. Yeah. yeah. And they keep, co- you know, the thing is, like every couple of years, there will be a new black country singer who is kind of promoting promoted as being you know somebody who might also break through because there have been a right right, because there have been a ton of great black country singers including over the last couple years you know so it's interesting to me that you know clearly the country industry is still very interested in trying to promote racial inclusion even as they kind of struggle with the fact that the artist roster remains almost entirely white but what i find very isn't that isn't that because the audience that purchases that the music is primarily white? I don't know. You know, I, I think that's part of, I think they're assumed to be white. Yeah, that's one or, thing. Or in the racial yeah. conditions that, uh, that go yeah. along with that. I mean, you know, the iconography, and uh, you know, is, is always kind of leaned that way. Uh, you know, right. we, might, we might call that a dog whistle, uh-huh, if you right. will. But, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that if, you know, if I look at it from today, from 2017 and look back and think about, you know, country's influence versus uh, soul music's influence, I, I don't think uh, country can hold a candle. It's remained <laughs> pretty stagnant, if you will, whereas, uh, you know, soul music has morphed uh, into these other things and, uh, you know, uh, continues to rule the charts. Not that country didn't. or right. and, and then there are pieces of country, you know, outlaw yeah. country, swamp music, that sort of thing, which I, I sure. know you talk about in the book as well. Yeah. So. Well, and I, I think, but, but one thing that's interesting to me is that I think you're right in a sense about, you know, obviously the soul, like from the journey from soul to funk to disco to hip hop has as obvious and then disc, you know, hip hop to post hip hop and soul hip hop and all that stuff. But I think, you know, one thing that's interesting about about particularly very mainstream country music that I talk about this in relation to disco, and I think it's still true, is that mainstream country has been much more interested in incorporating contemporary black popular music or maybe black popular music from 10 years previous, right, or something, you know, it's always been much more interested in doing that than the sort of like alt country or Americana scenes, right, Right. which have ostensibly have a more liberal racial politics. And I think most, yeah, I think the people involved would consider themselves liberal or consider themselves racially progressive. True. And I'm, I'm not saying that they're lying, but it's interesting that musically, if you're looking just music wise at what genre is trying to be in conversation with contemporary black music it's mainstream country i mean it is it much more than americana or any kind of roots or anything like that is you know you i mean everybody makes fun of florida georgia line and and doing and you know the bro country artists and the and the rapping that particularly that's been a part of their records but it's kind of interesting like like big and rich right 
Right, exactly. And it's kind of interesting, though, that it's this really commercial country where you hear that happening. And I think it's because country music has always been good at absorbing and incorporating and maybe appropriating, right, yeah. black music. It always has been back to the to the 50s, at least, if not earlier. So it's kind of an interesting thing. So I agree with you that there's a difference. But I think one of the things that I find interesting um, about country music is that it continues to try to use contemporary black pop to revitalize itself, whereas soul music, you know, the country influence on soul is only observable in certain parts of the genre today. And I, that doesn't mean that black folks or black soul singers aren't listening to, to country music, but it is interesting how that was kind of a center of gravity a little bit back in the day in a way that it isn't now. Just, you know, right even to the fact that, like, if you look at the 60s and 70s, pretty much every major R&B and soul artist covered a country song at some point, you know, right. you ne you wouldn't have that today, right? You wouldn't have, you know, it's hard to imagine, you know, The Weeknd or Future or Rihanna covering country songs. Although you do have Beyonce, Beyonce, you know, asserting her countryness, right? Yeah, so it's yeah. interesting to kind of, you know, which I love, I mean, Beyonce and the Dixie Chicks at the CMAs was, you know, I I think I tweeted that when that was going on that, you know, if, if, I, if I was writing the book now, it clearly that that would have been the last <laughs> chapter would have been about that. There so it is interesting right. to trace that journey. Right, right. So we want you to settle something for us or uh -oh. at least try, at least okay. try. So in Miami, in the early summer of 1968, there okay. was an industry meeting, the National oh, yes. Association of Television and Radio Announcers, NATRA convention. Yes. Some feathers got ruffled, to put it mildly. We've read several accounts, uh, Jerry Wexler's autobiography, yep. obviously, Grolnick's book, Sweet Soul Music, Mark Grabowski's bio of Otis Redding, and we can't quite wrap our heads around it. Uh, <laughs> give our listeners a little of the backstory. Uh, sure. It's kind of central to, to the story here, and maybe even more so than the Martin Luther King assassination. Uh -huh. So, and tell us, you know, what the hell happened, <laughs> and, and was that meeting at Miami a pivot point, uh, yeah. an important moment. So, uh, well, I certainly won't be able to settle it in terms of the definitive version of the story. I feel like I feel like Natra in 1968 is kind of like Rashomon, right? Where it's like <laughs> everybody has got a different, different take, right? Yeah, which is kind of a, you know kind of telling in itself, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, the big the big thing with the Natra convention, and I agree that it's a it's in many ways a much more pivotal moment in shifting the racial politics of the music than the King assassination. I don't mean to minimize the King assassination no, at all. I think, I, I think you got a point. Um, so basically what happens is that in, in the summer of 68, there is this convention that's held by a group, NATRA, which was the National Association of Television and Radio Announcers, which was an all-black organization that in its early days in the late 50s and through the mid-60s had been basically a kind of, you know, Elks industry. Club sort of thing. Yeah, like kind of yeah. a trade group. And it was cool, right? It was a lot of uh, black disc jockeys and other folks who would go hang out together. And it was like a trade convention. But in the mid-60s, as black music is kind of taking the central role in the, the freedom movement, a new they called themselves the new breed, a new group of 
political radio announcers and producers kind of rise to power in this organization and turn it into a very political, even kind of explicitly black power group saying we need to support the cause of black music and of black people in the music industry. And to do that, we need to assert greater control, which is a story that's happening all over black politics during that period, right? Of African-Americans saying, look, we really need to have control over this because clearly we haven't gotten far enough uh, trying to make alliances with white people, which is in a lot of ways is true. true, Oh, yeah. So in 68 in Miami, uh, what happens is this convention occurs that becomes a big flashpoint moment. There is this sort of takeover by several uh, very political members of the organization who basically declare the convention to be a black power convention and declare that this needs to be a moment where black folks reassert control over soul music and no longer have white people in charge. And it got really ugly. You know, Marshall Seahorn, the great New Orleans, white New Orleans R&B producer, was apparently pistol whipped. Uh, Jerry Wexler had to flee. Uh, it was not good. And and But the ramifications of this, I think, when you when you look when you listen to the white people in the story talk about it, they tend to look at Natra sixty eight as kind of this tragic ending, right? Right. Like after Natra nineteen sixty eight, nobody wanted to sign black people, or black people didn't want to work with white people. Which number one is demonstrably untrue. It's actually completely factually inaccurate. It's easy to disprove that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of those things took place uh, quite a bit. But the other thing is that when you listen to the black folks who were involved in this moment, they're often very critical of how the whole thing went down. But it becomes this kind of key moment in African-Americans really asserting control over the record industry. And Natra becomes, a, for a little while, a very influential music business organization. And um, a year later, they have another convention where the head of Capitol Records, the head of, the, of Capitol Records, stands up in front of them and basically says, we haven't been doing a good enough job with soul music. We're going to open a soul music division. We're going to hire black people to be in charge, and we hope the whole record industry does the same. I mean, that's a big deal because that that leads to a a new wave of black record executives, uh, a new wave of soul subsidiaries on major labels that hadn't had them before, and it leads to soul independent labels having a real position, not just of cultural prominence, but of political prominence for a little while. So the Natra story is very, very interesting and I think gets at the complications of that late 60s moment, right? And, And really the complications of what it meant to have an integrated music scene within a very, very politicized moment. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, out of difficulty, change uh, can occur. And it sounds right. like, uh, you know, after those folks stepped up, and I I think it was, from, from what I remember, Art Bell's uh, team that kind of led yeah. the charge, if I right. remember right, Al, and, Al. Uh, from Stax uh, right. Records. And, you know, uh, yeah, I guess for the old guard of the white... Uh, record owners, yeah. uh, you know, it kind of came across as a um, uh, a wake up call, and uh, yeah. you know, as you just explained, you know, in '69, you know, maybe the rest of the industry said, "Hey, wait a minute, these folks really do have something to complain right. about, and we need to do something about it." So, so right. good. All right, all right. Let me let me finish with a, a, a few changes uh, a little bit. I'm you know, going and sure. doing some of the research. I, I noticed that you wrote a really nice, touching piece uh, about Alan Toussaint when he uh, huh. passed away back in late. 2015. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that and Alan? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I mean, I, and this is just kind of a statement about what's been happening the last couple of years. I've written 
too many obituaries for the great musicians of that era. And obviously this is what happens, right? People aren't people. It's not going to get any better, but, um, no, uh, uh, I think there's more to come. Yeah. Unfortunately, but, um, it was a big moment. It was, I mean, Toussaint was one of the great American musicians of his century, brilliant writer, a brilliant producer, really underrated singer, I think as well. If you listen to Alan Toussaint's records, his voice is sort of limited in what it could do in terms of its range or its like volume, right? He wasn't the most necessarily versatile singer. Not a belter, right. Right, but an amazing voice that he used so brilliantly and beautifully on his own recordings, this soft, silky kind of voice. But one of the key figures in the development of New Orleans music really for three kind of decades. You know, he helped pioneer New Orleans rock and roll in the 50s, uh, R&B and soul in the 60s, and funk in the 70s. And just an absolute giant of of not just soul music or black music, but American music, whose musical roots go back to jazz and blues and country, he loved country, uh, but who also helped, I'm sure that there are hip hop records being made right now, this minute, that are using samples that are based on Toussaint stuff. Uh, so he's just, he's a genius. He is a testament to the power of black music and a black genius. And he is just responsible for a bottomless wealth of great, great records. Yeah, big loss. It's just, you know, and to your point earlier, one of many, uh, both black and white, that uh, we've lost recently. And uh, it just, I think, goes to show, you know, which is a central point for the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, is that this, this music that happened in the latter half of the 20th century, both black and white, is almost like a second renaissance. Uh, right. And I think as time goes on and we historians look back, right. uh, it, it grows and grows and, and becomes more and more significant. Uh, more, more and more significant. You know, we're seeing another resurgence of of rock music again, yeah. which, which I, you know, swore off. In fact, I, part of the reason why I started this thing was because I thought it was dead, dead, dead. Yeah, right. <laughs> Here it is now. Yeah. These guys are now doing these giant concerts in their 70s. I mean, imagine, can you imagine any other generation having, you know, 70 plus year old artists that are selling out, you know, hundreds of thousands of seats like Desert Trip last year? I mean, the youngest person on that bill was 69 years old. That's crazy. All right. So we like to ask this uh, to everyone. What's your playlist? What are you listening to these days? Wow, that's a tough one, right? Um, I'm glad you didn't ask me what my favorite record was because that's an impossible question. But oh, that I get asked. Next, but, okay. <laughs> what am I listening to right now? I'm I'm in terms of, of newer. I'll give some newer stuff and then some older stuff that I'm digging. New stuff. I mean, I'm really I love I love love the Alabama Shakes, which oh makes, yeah, Brittany makes sense fantastic. from a perspective of what I'm writing about and, and dig. But also, I love how on the second record, Sound and Color, they really and particularly. Brittany Howard, who's just such a powerhouse and such a brilliant musician, they're really kind of playing around with that, you know, that old sound, right? They did that retro soul thing and did it so powerfully. With the first album, right? Right. And now on this new one, I mean, it sounds like it almost, I mean, it's it's like got a lot of like spacey, almost prog oh, yeah. rock influence, yeah. Yeah. deep 
funk kind of like 70s p-funk deep cuts kind of stuff um it just it rocks like crazy i just i love them i love her i think she's great oh yeah um, it would have been so easy for them to just continue on with another album of just like absolutely. the first that, that was a shocker you're right and i think they really you know if you go back and look at interviews with her in particular they were very conscious about not wanting to do that you know they were Good really job. aware that they didn't they wanted to break out a little bit so I, I love them you know i'm a big big fan of jason isbell and particularly the ways in which he is able to kind of bring together a lot of the older music that I love and just incredible songwriting. And then really, really new stuff. I love Valerie June from Memphis, who's uh, she just released her second record. She is an African-American woman from Central Tennessee who started out pretty like almost a hillbilly kind of artist, like very country, very folk, and has now become this kind of mix of like, again, there's some really interesting rock influences, pop influences, a little bit of R&B, although she tries to kind of, she doesn't, I, I think she's very conscious of, as well of not wanting to be shuttled into that box. So I love her. And then I also, of course, you know, because it's it's late April 2017, I'm listening to that Kendrick Lamar album a lot. Like everybody else. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it's impossible to let that one go because I, I think it's just wow. brilliant. In terms of older stuff, I've really been getting back into Curtis Mayfield. Oh, yeah. uh, spending a lot of time with his stuff, particularly from the 70s, like post-Superfly. Like, he made some albums in the mid-70s that are just amazing. And I, I've really been digging that. And um, I've also been getting back in some sort of surprising ways, I guess, but also maybe not that surprising to... Uh, I've listened to a lot of Tom Petty recently. And, uh, you know, I find with him, he's one of those artists for me where I'm so familiar with his stuff, I've loved it for so long, that when I go back to his records now, part of it is about revisiting the tracks that I just love, but also it's like discovering album cuts that I have always known, but they they hit me in new ways. And so I've been doing a lot of his stuff too. Well, very cool. Very cool. So how is the, the music scene in Memphis these days? When was the last time you were down in Beale? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was down on Beale a couple of weeks ago, but you know, the lo us locals, most of us don't go down to Beale that much, but uh, the music scene here is great. Uh, obviously, you know, we have the legacy of so many great genres and that can be a double-edged sword because on one way, it's helps us as a city in so many ways and it's it's our heirloom right it's kind of our civic yeah treasure. But in other ways, you know, I think a lot of young musicians feel very hampered by the fact that, you know, we're the city that's associated with the 50s and the 60s and not necessarily yeah, now. records and all that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But there are so many brilliant musicians here right now. Uh, there's a young rapper named Marco Pave who's about to release his debut album called Welcome to Graceland, which is a pretty <laughs> evocative title. Uh, and it's all about Memphis music and Memphis history and and politics. And it that sounds really... That, that sounds like it's too con conceptual to be entertaining, but it's also super entertaining. A great hip-hop record that that is steeped in the sound of Memphis and really smart. Uh, there's a guy named John Paul Keith who's a kind of 50s and 60s style uh, rock and roll uh, singer-songwriter. He's great, and he also has a band that he works with with Amy LeVere, who got some attention for a couple of things over the years called Motel Mirrors. That's just a great, great band. They're about to drop their first full-length album. It's it's a great scene for young musicians. A lot of music that you wouldn't associate with Memphis. Memphis has a great Latino music scene, so it's a it's a cool place. Lots of cool gigs. You know, there's no recording infrastructure here. That's the big problem, right? Uh, there's no way to really make you know the, the record companies aren't here and they aren't paying attention. And even in this day and age of the digital world, the record companies still do matter. So I yeah. wish there were more ways for musicians to make good 
money off their, particularly their recordings. But it's really hard on recordings. It's right. It's all I mean, in touring nowadays. Yeah, exactly. But I, but it's a great time to be in Memphis and listen to to music coming out of Memphis for sure. Great, great. Well, there's a couple of names we will put on the list and uh, make awesome. sure we go and listen to. So, all right. So finally, just tell yes. us, you know, what you're up to right now. What's what's next for Professor Charles Hughes? <laughs> well, the next um, the next big writing project is actually not a music project, but I'm working on some stuff about professional wrestling um, <laughs> and thinking about African-Americans and, and professional wrestling. And so that'll hopefully be coming around in the next couple years. I'm doing work on that. And I'm doing a lot of little kind of articles and things about various music stuff. And then I've got another big music idea that I haven't really even harnessed into what I want to do with it yet, but it's going to have something to do with kind of a broad view of American popular music and thinking about American democracy and history and all that kind of stuff. So that's going to be a big one. I don't even know. That's a topic on a lot of people's minds right now. That's right. You know, it never, it never gets old, but, uh, but other than that, you know, I've just been doing a lot of really cool teaching and I get to, you know, I teach an Elvis class, which has been really fun. And it's just, it's a great place to do the kind of work I want to do in a lot of ways. So I keep busy. Well, we'll have to get down there uh, to Memphis and uh, and sit in on one of those classes. Uh, That Elvis class sounds really fun. You are welcome anytime. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Charles. All right. Hey, it's uh, been a a great pleasure and an honor having you there. And again, thank you for lending your voice to the Rock and Archaeology Projects uh, podcast. It's a pleasure. And I also want to say, you know, thank you for the work you do and you know such great work in, in kind of you know talking about the history of the music and also why it matters i mean that's that's really great work and I'm, I'm so thankful that you do that oh thanks thanks that means a lot to us so uh with that we will let you uh get on to your evening your grading or whatever you have yeah. to do this uh, this uh this <laughs> yeah, evening, it's, so it's pretty it's pretty glamorous over here yeah. So, yeah 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 all right charles again thank you very much for your time thank you christian Christian Swain back on the mic in the city by the bay. It was an honor and a lot of fun to give you diggers a chance to hear from a no kidding, unless to goodness, rock and roll scholar. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Professor Hughes and his work has been a real asset for our humble podcast endeavor. He is just a really smart and gracious guy, and he was very generous with his time. We thank the professor once again. Before we cut you loose today, we just want to say... Synergy, it's not just a Silicon Valley cliche. We now have several different interlocking shows with much more to say about American soul music. This episode of Deeper Digs, of course, and check out episodes 6 and 13 of the main show. And we just put out an episode of The Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I discuss Scott Freeman's book, Otis, The Otis Redding Story. Soul music fans, we've got you covered. We hope to do more of this kind of deep, wide coverage in the future. So come on back. Okay, class dismissed. Uh, 
Wait, quick reminder, you got to keep up the rockin'. That will be on the final exam. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.